as you're turning to Acts chapter 5 again. Acts chapter 5. Lord willing, we finish that today. Those of you who have been here a while know that I am a words person. And uh, another word just caught my attention. It just caught my attention before. Merciful and mighty. Holy, holy, holy. The Lord God Almighty. Merciful and mighty. What if he was just mighty? What if he was just mighty but not merciful? We'd be in trouble. What if he was really merciful but weak? We'd be in trouble. He's merciful and. That's a good combination. Great song. Acts chapter number 5. Lord willing, we want to finish this chapter. We're doing at a great speed this year. Uh, we're conquering this, averaging about a chapter a week. So that's awesome. Uh, no, chapter a month, my bad. Chapter a week. That would really be very different. Um, but... Lord willing, we finish up this chapter, and hopefully next week, jump into chapter 6. Uh, we'll got some unique things that will be in store. We're going to be doing a little different after, after next week. For a couple of weeks, you'll see how that goes. Uh, so hope you'll, you'll plan on joining us. Here's where we're at. The apostles have been arrested, Peter and John, previous to this. And they were told not to ever teach or preach in the name of Jesus by the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin is the ruling court in the land of Israel. This is the same people that pursued Jesus to death. Told them very strictly, don't ever teach or preach in the name of Jesus again. The apostles, Peter and John, told them they would be disobeying. Sure enough, they went out and disobeyed. And they preached all through the temple and all around town. And eventually, it got the whole group of the apostles arrested. And so they were arrested and put in prison one night. But in the night, the Lord sent an angel to release them and just open the prison door, and they went free. But the, name, the angel said, go right back into the temple and start teaching and preaching about Jesus again, which they did. Eventually, after the Sanhedrin realized that their prisoners were gone, they were going to put them on trial the next day, they realized through a report, oh, they're right next door in the temple. So they rearrest them the next morning and bring them back. So two weeks ago, we looked at what happened. The high priest, and again, the Sanhedrin, should keep this in mind. The Sanhedrin is made up of 71 members with the high priest, again, the current and the former high priest. The current high priest is named Caiaphas. His father-in-law was named Annas. Annas was still kind of the power behind Caiaphas, but these are the two leading men. They're both Sadducees. That's their religion. That's their position. They lead up the priestly realm in Israel. And so... The Sanhedrin is made up of 71 members of the high court of Israel, and here the, the apostles are brought before them. And on this council, there are Sadducees, who are the majority, and there are Pharisees, who are the minority. And they're elders. And so some, just some of the powerful, wealthy, wise men in Israel, all total, these are the 71 leaders of Israel. And the apostles are put on trial, and the high priest tells them, We strictly charged you not to teach or preach in the name of Jesus anymore. Not only have you disobeyed us, you just straight up disobeyed, but you're not just kind of like sneaking around doing it. You've taken over the whole city. Everywhere we go, people are talking about what's going on in the name of Jesus. Like you've, you've turned the whole city upside down for Jesus. So you've totally disobeyed us. And you're doing it in such a way that makes us look bad, like you're trying to bring this man's blood on us as though we're guilty. He didn't like it at all. But Peter then answered him on behalf of the apostles, said, we must obey God 
rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. Then he went on and told him the same kind of sermon, the points of the sermons that we've hit already multiple times in the book of Acts. He says that you put Christ to death. You, in essence, murdered the Son of God, the Christ. But God raised him up, but he he didn't just raise him up. He seated him at his right hand. And he's now dispensing forgiveness, and he's dispensing a gift of repentance. And we're witnesses of this, and so is the Holy Ghost, who's been given to all those who obey God. Now that takes us to verse 33. So I hope you caught the last part. We strictly told you not to teach and preach in the name of Jesus, yet you've done it. And then Peter gives this response back, and that leads to verse 33. Here we go. When they heard this, They were enraged and wanted to kill them. I'm not going to dig in long there, but I want you to feel it at the beginning. They're like enraged. They're overcome. They are filled with absolute infuriation, if that's even a word. I mean, they are infuriated to the point. I mean, emotions are running very high in the room. I mean, the apostles, as you will see by the end of verse 33... They want to put them to death. They are that close to be putting, being put to death. And don't think this group of men won't do it because chapter 7 is coming. By the end of chapter 7, the same group of guys are going to kill Stephen. Kind of just, just like that. They're going to be filled with rage at him and they're going to take him out and they're going to stone him. And now they are ready to execute these men. It's about over for the apostles. Verse 34 starts with the word, but... So back to 33 again. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Apparently there is talk, and it's just being talked about. We're going to kill. Let's kill them. That's it. And they're just standing there hearing them and seeing them. This is the same group of people that pounced on Christ and literally were hitting him with their fist and slapping him and spitting in his face. They can lose their dignity really quick. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But, interesting... A Pharisee, let that sink in. Who's God going to use? What kind of person is God going to use? How's God going to deliver the apostles? A Pharisee. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, the law of Moses, the Old Testament. A Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people. The idea there, if you were to go out in the streets of Jerusalem, hey, excuse me, can I ask you a quick question? Yeah, hey, have you ever heard of a guy named Gamaliel? Uh, everybody knows Gamaliel. What is, he's the teacher. He's the best teacher. He's the best teacher in our life. One of the best teachers of all time. He knows the law backwards and forwards. He knows our Bible backwards and forwards. He's the teacher. So he's held in honor by all the people. Verse 34 continues. He stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. This is very wise. One of the first things that Gamaliel does, he stands up. The room is going crazy. There's chaos everywhere. He says, hey, wait, get these these men out of here. Because he knows that their emotions are not going to come down as long as these guys and their presence is there. They're just going to keep at it. Just get them out of here. We need need some time. I need to deal with these men. So they leave. Verse 35. And he said to them, after they're out, men of Israel... Do you hear him kind of, I don't know what tone, I'm I'm assuming he's trying to use a, a lot less energy than they're projecting. Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do to these men. Men of Israel, hey, calm down. Take care. Be careful. Be very cautious. 
Slow down what you're about to do to these men. Why? For before these days, can I give you a history lesson? Again, if I were to play Gamaliel, can I give you guys a history lesson? I'm an old man. You need to listen to me. For before these days, Theodos rose up. Y'all ever heard of Theodos? Annas? You know him? Caiaphas? I don't know if you were alive then or not. You've heard about it. You guys have read this. Some of you lived back in that time. Verse 36. Guys, men of Israel, take care. Why? For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. You heard about that? Some of us lived in. Do you remember what happened? He was killed. He didn't die a natural death. He was killed. He rose up, started this big rebellion, big uproar, this big revolt. 400 guys joined to him, and he was killed. And you remember what happened after that? He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. Remember that? He rose up, big energy, big revolt, 400 ready to go take on the world, and he got killed. When he got killed, they all just kind of scattered. Not only him, verse 37, and after him, Judas the Galilean. You guys remember about Judas the Galilean after him? Judas rose up in the days of the sin. Y'all remember the tax when the Romans decided that we in Judea need to pay a tax on us as a person, not just our goods and not just our services, not our property, on us as people. And they were taking this sin, numbering the people so that they could hit us with a tax. You remember Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. You remember that? Yes. Remember what happened to him? He too perished. And then what? And all who followed him were scattered. Theodos rose up, started a movement. He got killed. His group scattered. Judas rose up. People followed him. He got killed. His people scattered. What's your point, Gamaliel? Verse 38. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. Let them alone. I read one place that the wording here actually means like when some bullies are picking on a, 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 a kid, a young person, a child, or a group of children. Hey, leave them alone. Just leave them alone. Stop it. Leave them alone. Back to verse 38. What's your point, Gamaliel? So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. Why? For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, if it's just man-made, it's just them doing it, it will fail. Case in point, the two people that I just told you about. It'll fail. If it's a man, it will fail. But if it is of God, if it's of God, you, two things are going to happen. You will not be able to overthrow them. You will not be able to overthrow them. And secondly, you might even be found opposing God. Guys, if this is of God, you're not going to destroy these guys, and you might even be found to be opposing God. Do you want to be opposing God? So the end of verse 38, 39 says, So they took his advice. Now pay attention. Watch. So they took his advice. And when they had called the above, bring them back in. They called in the apostles. And beat them. Does that strike y'all as odd? Are are y'all reading this with me? Like, let's kill them! Whoa, whoa, whoa. get them out of here. We need to just get them out. Guys, you remember when this happened? Yeah? You remember when this happened? Yeah? Just give this some time. Leave them alone. If it's a man, it's going to fail. 
But if it's of God, oh, okay, all right, we're with you. Bring them back in. And then they beat them. Wait, I thought they took his advice. So did they take his advice or not? Well, you got to remember, verse 40 looks like it contradicts verse, the end of verse 39, but it doesn't because, do you remember the baseline? What is the baseline? They want to kill him. So we did take his advice. But why are you beating him? We didn't kill him. Okay, all right. So they took his advice. Finish reading. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and, again, charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they, the apostles, left the presence of the council. Having been beaten, they leave the presence of the council rejoicing. That's odd. I used to teach in a school where we had demerit system. If you give demerits or detention and they start laughing about it, it probably didn't have the effect that you wanted it to have. If you ever give your kids a spanking and they start laughing and rejoicing, it's probably not having the effect you want it to have. My mom one time, I think my brother and I, I know we were in our teenage years, and I remember where it was. It was in the backyard. I don't remember what we did, but she started giving us a spanking with a flip-flop. And I don't mean one of the little flimsy rubbery ones, little thin, dense rubber, one of the thick, foamy ones. It sounded ferocious. And we were, we were so stupid because we started laughing that it wasn't hurting. And then she said, oh, well, fine, when your daddy gets home. No, no, this is bad. This is really, you're, this, is, this is getting us. This is horrible what you're doing. Please don't do it anymore. Why did we laugh? It was okay. Verse 41, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Rejoicing, we get to suffer dishonor to honor the name. And then to show that they really are not going to live, they're going to keep their word. Verse 42, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease. They did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus Notice with me three things. I'm going to kind of warn you. But our first point this morning is going to be 75%. Good 70% of the message. Like it's going to, you see it on your handout already. Notice three things this morning. We're going to spend most of our time in the first one. Number one, Gamaliel's advice of caution. Gamaliel's advice of caution. So kind of verse 33 all the way down through the middle of verse 39. Gamaliel's advice of caution. I'm not going to spend long here, but back up to verse 33 one more time. When they heard this, the council heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Why are they so enraged? Let's, let's regather our mind, just quick review. Why are, they, why are they wanting to kill these men? What's going on? Because the apostles had dared to come in, and they told them, you just didn't execute someone, you murdered Jesus. You murdered the Son of God, the Christ. And they did it in a way that obviously makes it, they, they've like painted the Sanhedrin as committing the worst crime, doing the most wicked thing that's ever been done in the history of the world. That doesn't sit well with the Sanhedrin. And then secondly, now they've told them to their face, the man that you've executed is alive. But he's not just alive running around somewhere on the earth after you've killed him. He's actually been exalted to the right hand of God the Father in the most honored place. You killed the person that God raised again and has put him at his right hand in the most honored position of all. And now, thereby, they have exposed the Sanhedrin's heresy. And they're ticked about it. They're very upset. And then, on top of that, they're claiming that 
They, why are, why are the Sanhedrin so mad? Because the apostles are claiming they have a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit in them that the Sanhedrin doesn't have. And the reason they have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is because they've obeyed God and the political leaders of Israel have not obeyed God. All of this is coming together. But I think if you put all of that on one side, I think there's one thing that really has them so enraged that equals all of that, and that was back in verse number 29 when Peter said, we must obey. We strictly charge you not to teach or preach in this name, and you fill Jerusalem with your doctrine, and you're making us look bad. You're trying to bring this man's blood upon us. We must obey God. Peter did not say, hey, hey, we had to obey God. He, that would mean, yeah, we had to do it, past tense, We'll stop. We see that you're really serious. Okay, we don't want to get in trouble. No, we must. We will continue to do this. And so they're just enraged. No, you won't either. We're going to put you to death right here, right now. We're not going to put up with it. We kill Jesus, we'll kill you too. But, verse 34, a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law. Would you write this down? There's a good bit of information about Gamaliel. We know that in chapter 22, we're going to learn that this man named Gamaliel is Paul's teacher in Judaism. Paul's going to say, he's a Pharisee and I was taught by Gamaliel. That's like the, the, the highest teacher that could be taught. So Paul knew the Old Testament well and where he learned it, apparently at a very young age. Paul is not born in Israel. He's born in where kind of Turkey in our day, where Turkey meets Syria. And I don't know the details, but apparently Paul, this guy Saul, who becomes Paul, Saul ends up excelling, apparently, to some degree. That I don't know if he gets a scholarship or somebody pays his way. He ends up coming and being taught by this man, Gamaliel, who's the best there is. So we know that Gamaliel teaches Paul Judaism. But this man, Gamaliel, is given a special title. Now let this sink in. He's given a title that only seven men in the history of Israel have been given. Often they're called, the great teachers are called rabbi, but Gamaliel was given the title of rabbin. Not just rabbi. Rabbi means my master. Rabbi, my master. Okay, he's not just rabbi Gamaliel, he's rabbin Gamaliel. Not my master, they call him our master. In other words, all of us accept the teaching of Gamaliel. As you write that note, I'm going to read what the Jews had said in one of their books of records where they kept their rules and laws and, and historical documents. It's said by the Jews in one of their writings, quote, when Rabban Gamaliel the elder died, this is, this is their take. Like, this is a true document. This is, this is actual. This is their perspective toward him. Quote, when Rabban Gamaliel the elder died, the glory of the law ceased and purity and abstinence died. In other words, nobody ever has taught it like he taught it. Not that the law changed, but our understanding of the law died so much so that they say when he died, the glory of the law ceased. And purity and abstinence, self-control, all that died. When Gamaliel died, we lost a lot. So guys, there's a dynamic that is going on in verse 34 in this whole section that we need to kind of understand because it's important. Sadducees, Pharisees. The Pharisees, they tell us there's only ever about 6,000 of them. They're not a large group. 
And then you have the Sadducees. They're the politically most dominant. They have the power. They're the ones who are in They have the high priest position. They have the majority of the positions on the Sanhedrin. So you have the Sadducees have the power, but you have the Pharisees. They're the minority. But watch, the common people out in Israel had more respect for the Pharisees than they did for the Sadducees. And because of that, I'm going to have you write it down. The Sadducees actually need the support of the Pharisees in, in a decision as weighty as killing the apostles. The Sadducees are the main ones driving this. They, we're just going to kill them. We're going to put them to death. But they know they can't do this if the, if the Pharisees are not on board with it. We need their support. Because if we kill them and the Pharisees go out and tell the people, Hey, wait, don't be mad at us. They did that. We were against it. There literally would be a riot. Remember the churches up into the tens of thousands of people. And they would be very upset. And even those who were not Christians still held Christians in high esteem. And they would be very mad that these guys who are healers have been put to death. They've done nothing but help our nation. Why did you kill them? And so the Sadducees know, wow, can't just do this without the support of the Pharisees. And so here Gamaliel stands up, totally outnumbered. He's the minority. But this man had lived... I'm not saying that Gamaliel's saved. I hope he is. There is a chance. The Bible doesn't say. I would love to get to heaven and this man be saved. That would be awesome. There's no indication of that. But this man lived such a lifestyle and had such knowledge that was applied in the form of wisdom that even his enemies, even his enemies, his political and religious rivals still respected him. You can picture the younger Sadducees. Like, what are we going to listen to? Why would we listen to him? He's a Pharisee. It's Gamaliel, man. Come on, everybody listens. Gamaliel. He knows what he's talking about. We listen to him. In our country, our country right now, you don't find that dynamic, hardly. I, I'm not on Capitol Hill. I'm not in, in Washington, D.C. But the vibe that I get is there's probably just a few people on either side of that Republican and Democrat aisle that when they talk, the other side actually says, hey, wait a minute, I actually do want to hear what she's got to say. I need to hear what he's got to say because they're, 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 they're wise. I, I, I thought about naming one in a nearby state, a couple of states away, a senator. But I don't want to say it until he dies because he may blow it between now and then. But I, I really appreciate his balance. I, I, I think both sides are like, yeah, that's our guy. And the other side like, hey, I, I actually want to hear what he's got to say because he's got some wisdom. And I'm sure there's a few, but it's very rare. Simply put, everybody with me? Had, Gal had Gamaliel stood and sided with the Sadducees, the apostles would have been killed on the spot that day. But he didn't. So I want to do this for a moment. I'm, in my mind, you're not going to see it on your handout. I'm treating the next few minutes in kind of three ways in my mind. So here's the first one. What exactly is Gamaliel's advice? As you read it, if you were to reread it over and over, what is the advice? I want to propose to you. Here's, if we boil it down, his advice is not verse 36 and 37. His advice is verse 35 and then verse 38 and 39. So here's... Again, in my own words, and some of his, here's his advice. Guys, hey, whoa, be careful. Calm down. Slow down. Hey, guys, you can kill them at any moment. We can do that at any time. But right now, you're so filled with emotion, you're about to do a permanent action that you just might regret. Don't do this. 
They would not have known it then, but now through research, the scientists have told us that when we get in the case, like they're enraged and infuriated, so triggered, we know that literally the blood leaves our brain. Not completely, but a lot of the blood leaves our brain, and where does it go? It goes into our hands and into our feet. Like they're ready to take action, and I think if he would have had today's technology, what Gamaliel was saying is, well, just calm down. You... Get your shoulders down. I know you're ready to kill them. Just hang on. Just let the blood come back into your brain. Because you make very poor decisions when the blood is out of your brain. Just let it come back. Just listen to me for a moment, guys. My advice is let's just let these guys be. Leave them alone. Why? Because if it's of man, it's going to fail. But if it's of God... You're not going to be able to stop them, and you're going to end up fighting against God. Now, I don't know about you guys. Let me calm down because I'm getting worked up. I don't know about the 71 of you, but I don't want to be found fighting against God. Do you? Do the 71 of us, are we ready to take on God? I'm not signing up for that. These men are trying to open a door, and here we're trying to pull it. So we're pulling this way, and they're pulling that way, and we're wondering, there's 71 of us, there's 12 of us. How in the world? And you go up to the front of the door, and you're ready to like, Oh, oh, and then there's God. and yeah. I don't want to be that. See what he's saying? I don't want to get crushed. So I think that's his advice. Just pause, let it be. Give it time. Leave him alone. And he gives a couple of his examples of why. So here's my question for you this morning. Everybody ready? Is that good advice? Is that good advice or not good advice? So we'll break right now. We'll come back next week with your answers. <laughs> Write this down. I find this interesting. The Bible neither endorses nor condemns Gamaliel's advice. It just records that God used his advice to save the lives of the apostles. The Bible does not condemn it doesn't endorse it. It just says this is what happened. Does that make sense? Is this good advice? Is this bad advice? I've read some folks. I've read some books. Uh, again, I'll, I'll kind of say his name because he did make a lot of good points. And in fact, I'll, I'll use a quote from him in a moment. Uh, when I read Warren Wiersbe, it was like he only put a negative spin. I think he thought like there's nothing good in this advice. And others would say a little bit different. So is this good advice? Or not. As you're writing that note, now I need to just very quickly, while we're here, notice what this note says. So I'm going to stop preaching this passage and I want to make a point for those of us who ever read the Bible and if you're ever listening to someone teaching or preaching. Notice, the Bible doesn't condemn or endorse this, it just says it happened, it just records it. Sometimes, People read the Bible and they reach wrong conclusions about what the Bible is actually teaching because they're reading what actually happened and they're reading an accurate account of what happened, but the Bible did not endorse or condemn it, and yet they start digging in and teaching and preaching as if doctrine has been declared through the Scripture when all it did was narrate what happened. Does that make sense? When you read your Bible, you got to be careful. Is the Bible just saying this is what happened and that person did that and that one said that? And so, okay, that's what we should do. 
The Bible does not endorse everything that it records accurately. This is where a lot of people get in trouble. I could use a, a very clear, obvious example. Do you guys know that you could go into your Bible and you can literally find where the Bible says there is no God? That sentence is in your Bible. There is no God. What's the context of it? The wicked. The fool has said in it, it's Psalm 53, verse number 1. It's right there in the Bible. The Bible says there, no. The Bible says the fool hath said in his heart there is no God. Obviously, we wouldn't read that and say, I guess there's no God. No, 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 no. The fool says this, and that's an accurate statement about what the fool foolishly believes. So is the advice good or bad? Hey, give it time. Calm down. Take caution. If it's of man, it'll fail. If it's of God, you're not going to defeat them, and you're going to be on the wrong side, and you're going to get crushed by God. You don't want to be found fighting against God. Is this good advice or not? For starters, notice in verse 36 and 37 that Gamaliel gives a couple of examples. Notice back in 36. For before these days, Theodos. Let me just tell you guys real quick. Have y'all, raise your hand if you've ever heard of Josephus. Raise your hand if you've heard of Josephus. Josephus is the historian from this time that was a Jewish historian. His works are not inspired, but they, he's a historian, an actual person in that time, right after that time, and he, he studied it all and wrote about it. It's a good, accurate reflection of what happens. not perfect document. And so we use him, and unfortunately, we don't know anything about this Theodos other than what's written right here. We don't know anything about Josephus writes about a later Theodos, like 14 or 15 years after this event, but it can't be the same one. And this guy also leads a revolt, but it's a different one. And you may think, that's unusual. No, the name Theodos was very popular back then. Just like the name James and Judas. We see a guy named Judas here. Two or three of the apostles are named Judas. So there's certainly, there were multiple Theodoses. But the second guy, look at verse 37. After him, so we know that this second person is after Theodos. So after him, Judas the Galilean rose up. Josephus, pay attention, here's going to be an important point. Josephus writes about this man, Judas of Galilee, who starts a revolt, and by putting the calendar together, what we've learned is that there was a census in now what we call A.D. 6. A.D. 6, our calendar year, we're now 2023, that was 6. This man named Judas stirred up a revolt and a riot that had to do with taxes, and he led a lot of people. In fact, he said he was going to go out to the Jordan River and he was going to strike it or whatever. And it was going to open up and that was going to prove, well, that never happened. And eventually he got killed and his big movement ended up dispersing. So here's the thought. Gamaliel is here somewhere around 30 to 33 A.D. He's referring back to one event that was, we know is 6 A.D. For them, this is 25, 26 years previous, and we know that Theodos was before that. So apparently here's what's happening. Hey, guys, calm down. And he starts using examples from former years, which is obviously showing them, I lived during this time. I'm an older man. You ought to be listening to me. A few of you lived this as well, but some of you have not. Just, here, here's his whole point. He's referring to events 25, 30, 35 years previous, and what he's saying is, guys, I've seen them come and go. I've seen them rise, and I've seen them fall, and now we have this one. But by what he says and how he treats this one, it seems what he's saying is, I've seen them come and go, I've seen them rise and fall, but this is different. 
You've got to see there is some unique things that are happening here. We cannot kill these guys. This is not like those other things. Y'all do understand that. I know you want to kill them. I know you're really mad. But I'm asking you not to do this. I'm pleading with you. Take another look. Could it be that something not just unique, but something special is actually happening here? Say, wow, sounds like he's... God is using a Pharisee to save the lives of the apostles. I want you to notice verse 39. I told you we'd, take this, we'd spend most of our time working through this first point. Look at verse 39. I don't know when it was, maybe the fifth or eighth time I read this, that finally it dawned on me that the beginning of verse 39 has a very important word in it and the ramifications of it. Maybe it struck you. It took me a little while before I saw it. Look at verse 39. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overcome them. You might even be found opposing God. What's the word? Does anything jump out at you? Let me read it again. Back up. If this plan or this undertaking is a man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. There's a lot of words there, but did any? Say it, brother. If. If. Think about this. This is Israel. This is important. I wonder, did anyone in the council pick up on it? Israel's most respected teacher of the law just told them if this is a movement of God. I wonder if anybody on the council is like, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Gamaliel, this can't be a movement of God. Right? Can't be. Right? Well, actually... You're the most respected teacher. You know more about our holy book than anybody. What are you saying? What I'm saying is actually what has happened and what they're saying has happened. There is a possibility that it could actually align with and even make sense of the law and the prophets. Write this down. Israel's most respected teacher of the law of Moses could not find a biblical scriptural reason to say that the movement of Jesus was not from God. He couldn't do it. And he's the most respected one. You think he would say, guys, this is not of God. We need to kill them, put them to death. And here's the reasons why. He couldn't do it. So at least he has the sense. What he's doing is calling the Sanhedrin. Guys, I need you to do what I've done. Just give it a chance. Just think for a moment. I know you have your mind made up. But what if, what if we're on the wrong side? Give a scriptural reason. Move back. What Gamaliel's saying here is, men of Israel, we cannot kill these men. They really are witnesses. They are the ones who saw things. If we kill them, we're doing a disservice. We need them. We need to find out. Something unique is going on, something special. Perhaps something supernatural is taking place. We must not put them to death. If we are wrong, we will pay the price. If it's man-made, it'll fail. But if it's of God, you're not going to be able to stop it. 
Write this down. I don't, I'm not saying this is true, but just the whole tone, having read this over and over, it seems to me like something has brought doubt into the heart of Gamaliel. So I'm going to propose this morning, perhaps it was the resurrection of Jesus and the miracles of the apostles have now brought doubt. doesn't say that, but something is happening in this man for him to be allowing. Hey, Sanhedrin, I need you, I'm asking you to at least do what I've done. Just ask the what if question. What if? If it's a man, okay. If it's of God, though, you're saying it can be of God. It could be of God. We need to take a look at this. The reason I say that is the miracles of the apostles, guys, are totally, they're undeniable. This is not like magic tricks. This is real things. They would have loved to have found a flaw in it, but these are real things. And Jesus had done real miracles. And I wonder if, if, if Gamaliel's even thinking, Guys, listen, I know we put him to death and we pursued him to death. He started out, do you remember three years ago? He started out as someone that we thought was a man of God because nobody could do the miracles that he does except God helps him. We moved from that because he was so unconventional to being his enemies. We opposed him. We pursued him to death. But do you do remember, he said he was going to come alive again after the third day. We put guards on post and we couldn't keep his body. There's something's going on. I don't know about you, but what if... And if the what if is on the one side, I don't want to be on that side with you guys. You're on your own. Well, obviously, the Pharisees are going to go with him. And apparently, he wins over. And thereby showing his influence, he wins over the Sadducees. So before I move to my second thought within this, hang with me. I told you I was going to look at this three ways. Number one, what is the advice? So before I hit the second one, Can I just speak to anyone? This may be one person. This may be five of you. If you do not yet agree with Christianity, put yourself in that position. You do not agree with Christianity. Could I implore you and beg you? You need to do two things. Make sure you understand the components of Christianity. And then two, what you need to do is say, what if I'm wrong? What if? I don't believe in Christianity. I'm just not there. Maybe you're against it or maybe you're not sure. Would you please do yourself a favor and say, what if? Like get in alone in a quiet place and just stop and think, do I know the components, the truth, what Christianity is putting forth? And now stop and think, what if I really am going to live forever? What if there really is a heaven and it's way better than I think? What if there really is a hell and it's way worse than I think? What if there really is a God who caused his son to become a human being and he sent him to die on a cross? And what if that death paid for all my sin? And what if, just you ought to think about it. What if God really is offering salvation for free? All you got to do is say, I'll take it. You need to just ask yourself that. What are the ramifications if I'm wrong? You better ask the what if question. So is this good advice or not? Would you write this down? God definitely used this advice to save the apostles' lives, but Gamaliel's counsel has definite flaws. There are definite flaws in it. So if you were on the side a few minutes ago, like, no, this is horrible advice. If you're like with Warren Weir's, be like, this is terrible. This is stupid. Uh, okay. It does have some flaws. Flaw number one, uh, again, I'm not going to dig into these. Flaw number one. Hey, don't compare Jesus to those losers. What did they ever do for Israel? 
you see what Jesus has done. Don't, com- you don't, don't compare those. Number two, this is important. Write it down. With the amount of evidence, so here's a flaw in what Gamaliel says. With the amount of evidence and the spiritual light that they had been given, Gamaliel should not be in the valley of indecision. He should not be saying, what if, and if that, and if that. He should have stood up and said, hey, guys, listen, the evidence is in. There's too much light. I can't do this anymore. He should have confessed, Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Christ. He is the Lord. He is the Savior. I'm with those guys. If you're going to kill them, you need to kill me too. That's why he should have done. So this is a definite flaw. I don't know what's going on. He's in the valley of indecision. Gamaliel, why? You've seen the evidence. The light is bright. You're choosing to turn away from the light. Definite flaw. But the other flaw that I want to hit is in... The end of verse 38. Did you catch it? You probably did. Look at the end of verse 38. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, if it's of man, it will fail. The idea that if it is of man, it will fail is just not true always in the short term. Catch what I just said. That is not always true in the short term. I told you I'd use a quote. If you want to write it down, Warren Wiersbe writes the following. He says, this idea that if it's of man, it'll fail. Wiersbe is correct. He says, this idea does not take into consideration two things. It doesn't take into consideration the sinful nature of mankind. If, if it's of man, it'll fail. It won't work. People won't buy it. No, you're not taking into account the sinful nature of man that is willing to buy untruths. Nor does it take into account, number two, the presence of Satan in the world. It doesn't take that in. In fact, in fact, Wearsby ends up pulling a quote from one of our writers, Mark Twain, that great theologian. He writes, quote, Mark Twain said, let this sink in. Twain said that a lie runs around the whole world while truth is still putting on her shoes. A lie runs around the whole world Truth's still over here, putting her shoes on, ready to get it. Isn't that sad? But that, have you ever noticed that? Like bad information, gossip, slander, that takes off. Now, hey, will you go tell somebody about Jesus? I don't, I'm shy. Well, I notice you post a lot of junk, but you never post good stuff. Yeah, yeah, well, I, I just, oh, okay. A lie runs around the whole world, and truth, unfortunately, because of Satan's presence and mankind's sinful nature, is still getting ready to go. Would you write this down? Wearsby is correct in writing, this is important, each word. In the end, in the end, God's truth, God's truth will be victorious. So that part's correct. But meanwhile, here's the problem, in the short term, meanwhile, Satan can be very strong and influence multitudes of people. And that's the problem with Gamaliel's advice. In the long run, definitely. In the end, God's truth is victorious. We know the last chapters. We know the last book. But in the meantime, sometimes untruths get a foothold because Satan can be strong and influence people. I know you're right. I want to ask you a quick question. I want you to boil it down in your mind. Can you do this in one word? In one word. Think it first. Here's your, I know you're writing, but maybe just pause. That'll be up there for a moment. Here's your assignment. Can you in one word 
say why we know that this is false. If it's of man, it'll fail. If it's of man, if it's man-made, it will fail. How do we know that that is not always true? Could you put it in one word? It's what? Cult. Anybody else? What's the word that comes to mind? It may end in an M, an I-S-M. Humanism. Islam. How do we know this? This is just not truth. If it's of man, it'll fail. Actually, the evidence is in. That's not true. There are some 9 million, apparently, Jehovah's Witnesses, 17 million Mormons, 400 million Buddhists, 900 million Hindus, 1.8 billion Muslims. Gamaliel's wrong. So in that sense, there's some serious flaws in his doctrine. So is it all bad? No, it's not. Let's finish here on this first point. Come down the home stretch. Write this down. Gamaliel's advice contains some serious wisdom to it. How? He displays at least two strong beliefs in what he says. Number one, he displays a belief in the ultimate sovereignty of God. Hey, God, what he's implying, and the Pharisees did believe in the sovereignty of God. They strongly believed in the sovereignty of God. What he's implying here is, let it alone. There is a God. He's in, he's in control. And if we're not sure, this is key, ladies and gentlemen, at Graceview. If we're not sure, we're going to leave it in his hands because God is sovereign over all details. Over all situations, God is sovereign. So in that way, he's right. There is wisdom in this. And the second thing, my words, not his what Gamaliel is saying in his words is a belief that God's people doing God's work in God's power for God's glory are in essence invincible until God is finished using them. And so there is great wisdom in some aspects of what Gamaliel Hey, listen. When we're not sure God will have his will in this thing, ultimate, long-term. I need you guys to take the long view, Sanhedrin. Let's take the long view. Further even than the 25, 35 years he was asking for in his two examples. Let's take the long view. There is a God, and he's sovereign over all things. And oh, by the way, if this is of God, if they are God's people doing God's work and God's power for God's glory, we're not going to stop it. These guys are invincible. By the way, I would propose to you on this day, the apostles were invincible because God was not done with them. Had they died this day, we would not have a New Testament. But God is so sad on using these men, he would even use a Pharisee, an unsaved Pharisee, to save their lives. So here's his advice. Is this good advice? There is some wisdom. Here's the wisdom. Take care. Slow down. Give it time. Don't just attack them. I'm going to ask you this morning, pay special close attention in the next few minutes. Hear all I've got to say. There are times when God's people must strongly oppose heresy. I just said all these isms, Buddhism, Mormonism, Islam. We don't hate those people, but those doctrines, 
That's known heresy. We must strongly oppose known heresy. We got to do it. So we're not in the middle. It's not like, hey, just let it be. What will be? No, we oppose that. But there are times when God's people must strongly oppose heresy. But here's the problem. Sometimes, now hear the description, churches that, number one, serve God, and number two, proclaim God's truth. That's two good things about them. They serve God. Churches that serve God, proclaim His truth. Unfortunately, they have been guilty of attacking and condemning other ministries simply because the way they serve God, they're serving God, and the way they proclaim His truth is different than how they've been doing. Not the content, but the method they've been getting it out. It's new. It's new. Hadn't, hadn't seen it done that way. And then God's people will start attacking God's people unknowingly, thinking they're doing something great. When they really should have just said, wait, wait a minute. Before we attack, are we sure that this is heresy? we got to draw the lines of ministry where God draws the lines. In His Word and by His Holy Spirit. Not where a preacher or a church or a seminary or a denomination draws the lines of ministry. Can't draw the lines where... But my former, I know that's wrong. Why? Because my former pastor said, okay, your former pastor nor this one sets the parameters of what's allowed in ministry and what's not allowed in ministry. The Bible sets those parameters. The Holy Spirit sets those parameters. And that's where we've got to draw the lines. Sometimes God's people have very ignorantly attacked and opposed others of God's people. I don't even know if she'll remember it. Decades ago, Deanna and I came out of a concert, I think on a Friday night. We were in there about three hours. Yes, we laughed goofily. We laughed and we were entertained. And that guy sung really high and that one sang really low and that one sang really good. And yeah, that one, his hair's a little long. But when we, and we cried and we were edified and we worshiped. And when we walked outside with a few other thousand people, Some knuckleheads from my Bible college are out there street preaching that all of us are going to hell because apparently the music that we were listening to inside worshiping God and being edified is not how they would have done it. And that was embarrassing. Really. Come over there and knock you out. I was a couple of years removed from school at that time. Oh, I know those guys. That's our gang over there. If you're going to condemn a movement, a claim, a church, a teacher, a preacher, I'm going to ask one simple thing. If you're going to condemn them, be ready to give a specific passage of Scripture that's in its right context. I've written these down, and I know most of you, most of you be like, what? And others of you be like, I actually remember that. Oh, no! They're not wearing ties over there. What? Where? That new thing over there. This is a few years ago. They don't wear ties over there. Oh. Start condemning. They don't wear suits. They don't wear dresses. They don't use songbooks. They're putting their words up on the screen. They don't have songbooks. They don't use the certain music style. They're using the other. That. 
music style. They don't use the translation. They're using the other translation. They don't have pews. They don't meet at the acceptable times. Now, they meet at some of the acceptable times, but they don't meet at all the acceptable times. Okay, all I will say, what verses do you have, if you're going to get out there and condemn everybody, like specific turn in your Bible for these issues? Now, I know, thankfully, we're not fighting those battles anymore. In our county, they used to have to fight this junk. Amen, Jeff. We're not there anymore. You're right. Praise the Lord for that. But let's don't do that now. Let's don't be that kind of people. Write this down. When in doubt about the truthfulness of a claim, where Gamaliel is, when in doubt about the truthfulness of a claim or a ministry, it is wise. Just wait for clarification. Don't jump up and give a firm, I'm for it, if you're not sure. Don't say you're for it yet. Or against it. Don't oppose it just like, I'm not sure. Can you be sure first? Give it some time if it needs to be untangled in your mind. Don't be swayed by those who don't have Scripture to back up. Don't condemn new methods just because they're new or different than the ones you've ever used. A lot of Christians divide over issues that frankly cannot be defended from the Bible. While you're writing that, I'm going to read you. It's a verse. I'm admitting it is about questionable activity. What I'm about to say is about questionable activity. But I think the, the principle applies to questionable claims and questionable ministries. I think the principle is the same. It's at the end of Romans 14, which years ago we spent weeks and weeks on. The questionable activity is, is it right or wrong to eat meat that's been offered to idols? Is that right or wrong? Here's an animal that's been sacrificed and it's been offered to demons, to idols. And there was some meat left over, and it was sold down in the marketplace. Is it sinful to go buy that meat and eat the meat that's been offered to idols? Do you, don't raise your hand. Y'all do know the answer to that, right? Paul goes on and shows, technically it is not sinful. It's just meat. But if you think it is sinful, then it is sinful for you. Well, what if I'm not sure? Chapter 14, verse 23 says, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. But whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. What he's saying is, hey, it isn't wrong to eat meat offered to idols. Well, I think it is. Well, then it is for you. I'm not sure if it is. Then it would be sin for you, because by eating, what you're saying is, God, I don't know if this is sin or not. I'm going to go ahead and do it. No, you better not do it. That would be sin, because you can't do it out of faith. Jeff, what does I have to do here? I don't know if this thing over here, this truth that's being done and this movement and this method and all this, I don't know if it's true or not. If there is a chance these really are God's people doing God's work, then you need to just not attack them and not condemn them because whatever you end up doing is going to be noticed by God. And if they end up being his people, you're on the wrong side. You don't want to be there. I don't want to be there. Be careful. Slow down. Let the blood get back in your, in your brain. Number two. The Sanhedrin's tempered reaction. I think in all my years, I've never had a point that I didn't have a note under the point. But on this one, we don't. Would you just quickly look at verse 40? And when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they brought them in and they beat them. We've already noted how I thought, they, did they take the advice or not? Yes, by not killing them shows they took the advice, but they still beat them. So 
pretty much the whole of this point, I'm just going to read. Uh, I've promoted study Bibles before, and a really good one is the ESV study Bible. It writes the following about this verse. So just listen. Quote, The text does not say whether it was with the maximum of 39 stripes prescribed by Jewish law or with fewer stripes. So again, the text doesn't say. Were they, were they hit with 39 stripes? It doesn't say. Continues, quote, the lashing, by the way, Paul writes that he was beaten with 39 lashes five times. And we don't even know that they really show up in the scripture, but that happened. So apparently Paul got 39 five times. This probably was 39 lashes. Back to the ESV, it writes the following. The lashing consisted of striking the victim's bare skin with a triple strip of calf's hide. Sounds like a belt, but it's triple stripped. And it's on the bare skin. It continues, quote, The victim received two blows to the back, then one to the chest. Remember the bare skin. Two to the back, then one to the front. That's three. That's one cycle. Thus, each cycle to be divisible by three, which explains the maximum limit of 39, which is one less than the 40 prescribed in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy says to the Jews, when you beat someone for a crime, you can't go over 40. So to be safe, the Jews only did 39, just in case they miscount. They don't want to break God's law. And the way they would do it is bare chest, bare back, some triple cowhide, which is like some triple version of a belt, and they would do one across the back, Two across the back, and then the front chest, and that's one out of 13 cycles. It's going to end up being 26 of those to the back, 13 to the chest, which takes us to the third point. Number three, the apostles' joyful perspective. The apostles' joyful perspective. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching. Did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Here's what I've noticed through the years. There's a lot of people who are very willing to endure great hardship to show their commitment, to show their loyalty. Can y'all think of anything? You don't have to say that loud. Like, oh, I'm in. You know, if you're going to be in this, you got to... Some, there's going to be some real cost. That's fine. You really going to go to that school down there on the coast? You know they haze people in the first year. It's really, really rough. First week, they have a word for it. I can take it. I want it. I welcome it. Okay. Go for it. You really want to be in that fraternity? They're going to, you want to be in this gang? You know what have to, you have to do to get in this gang? You're going to be in the mob over here? Do you know what you have to do? You got to do something. You're going to, be one of the inside guys for that powerful political leader? Well, he needs to know that you're loyal. You're going to be part of the military, this particular military group? Do you know what you have to do to, I'll do it. I want them to know I'm committed and I am loyal. And a lot of people are very willing to show their loyalty by enduring very difficult things. But I think what's going on here is much deeper than that. Here's why. None of the things that I just mentioned deserve loyalty completely. Only Jesus does. There are layers to the first part of verse 41. There's layers there, and I want to get those across as we come down the home stretch this morning. Write this thought. 
My first thought went this direction. Why were they rejoicing? Number one, I believe the apostles were so thankful for all that Jesus had done for them. Not just what they knew that he did on the cross, but the sin-bearing aspect of that. They didn't know it fully, but they had some idea of that. They, They were so thankful for what Jesus had done for them. And, can I add this, they're so aware, they're so aware of who Jesus is that they will refuse to let any cost to be associated with him to cause them to be cast down, sullen, or bitter. We will not be... In other words, if those people will endure that to be associated with that group, well, we know that who Jesus is. He's the Lord of all the lords, the King of all the kings. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. We know that if we were to see him sitting on the right hand of God right now, Whatever it takes to be associated with him, even if it's a high cost, we'll gladly do it. We're so thankful that we get to be associated with him, bring on the pain if that's the cost. No cost will make us be sullen, downcast, and bitter. I think that's what's going on. But there's more. You got your Bibles. I do not have these next verses on the screen. I have one more set of verses So you're in Acts chapter 6. You got your Bible? Flip over if you would. I'm going to skip around a little bit. Go to James. Just flip over to James. It's not on the screen, so you're going to have an advantage if you're there. And I'm just touching them. Ready, quickly go. James chapter 1. Look at verse number 2. Because what I want to get across is this whole attitude and this idea of rejoicing amid hardship and difficulty and persecution is not like a one-time event. Like This really defines their life. James chapter 1 verse 2 This is the Lord's half-brother. He's not one of the twelve, but he's going to be closely affiliated with them, and he's going to end up having the same attitude. Count it all joy. Is it joy? Well, it's not joyous. You count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Count it joy, because you know it is good for you. That's James. Go back if you would. Quickly, quickly. But go there. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. This was in my devotional reading just at the end of last week. That's why it made it in here. That happens sometimes. Look at Romans 5. Look at verse number 3. Paul is making a list of the benefits of being saved by faith, by grace, justification, by God's grace and our faith. Look at verse 3. This just permeates the apostles' attitude. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that the suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. We're not going to be embarrassed. We're not going to be fooled, like, oh, it didn't turn out. No, we will not be put to shame. So we actually rejoice in our sufferings. That's chapter 5. Flip over to chapter 8. Go there quickly. Look at chapter 8. Look at verse... 17. Look at verse 17. If we're children of God, which it just makes the point, those that have the Holy Spirit are children of God, then we're heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Look at verse 18. Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings, the sufferings of this present time, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Did you catch that? Look this way. I've concluded, Paul says, the suffering, but Jeff, it hurts. It's really bad. I mean, I'm in prison. I'm being beat, and they're going to kill me. Paul says, there's the sufferings, but that 
that is not worth comparing with the glory. But like, it's really bad over here. Paul is saying, that's like what you can't do. You can't compare pennies and $100 bills. I got a penny. I got a $100 bill. I got a hundred pennies. Ha ha. You would have to have 10,000 pennies to equal one of mine. But it hurts. That is, yes, that is true. But that is nowhere in the ballpark. You can't compare that with what's coming. This is so much better than that. That's verse 18. Flip over to verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? If these things start happening in our life, surely it means that Christ doesn't love us anymore. No, no, no. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? What if we're in tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? What if persecution comes? Does that separate us from the love? Verse 36. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. They think of us, they're just sheep to be slaughtered. And then Paul answers his question. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Grace for you, listen. When the heavy cost of being associated with Christ come, it's not like, hang on, we win, we overcome, we make it. Yeah. What they're saying is, no, 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 we're, we're more than conquerors. We're not just overcomers, we're more than that. Well, what's more than that? Glad you asked. Go to Matthew chapter 5. Flip over there. This will be the last thing we'll go to. Matthew 5. Very quickly, Matthew 5. Because I believe that the apostles on this day, as they were being beaten, remember, they're not in the room. The last time they left the room is, uh, guys, they may be killing us here in a moment. Okay. I think they're ready. They're ready for whatever comes. And then they're brought back in, and it's just a beating with probably 39 lashes. And they're a bloody mess. And they're going to carry scars the rest of their life. And they leave rejoicing. Like, what? In the Sermon on the Mount, I believe this is washing over them. And I believe they're remembering this. In John, listen, in John 14, I think it's verse 26 or 28. On the night that Jesus is being betrayed and he's having his trial and he'll die the next morning, he tells his disciples, when I leave, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. He's going to lead you into all truth and he's going to remind you of all that I've ever said. In one hour from now, you're not going to remember hardly anything that I've said. Jesus says, guys, the Holy Spirit's going to cause you to remember all that I've said. It's going to come back. It's It's unique to you apostles and that's why they wrote the New Testament. So here, I believe this is happening. And then that same Lord says in Matthew 28, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. If only we could remember everything you said. The Holy Spirit is helping them to remember, and I believe in this day when they're getting beat, the Holy Spirit is causing them to remember perhaps this passage. Look at verse 10. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They're blessed because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Hey, not just the righteous, the righteous, the saved inherit the kingdom, but the persecuted have a unique blessing. Verse 11. Blessed are you. This is Jesus talking. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my, guys, 
when they do this on my account because of me, and it's falsely, they're making false accusations, you're blessed. Okay, what should we do? Verse 12, Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. You're blessed. If you were here a few years ago when we were in Matthew chapter 5 and we went through the Beatitudes, the word blessed here means fortunate, happy, urient. That person is in the happy, fortunate, enviable, good position. You're in the desirable position. You're blessed. Here's what it means. These people have the good life. This doesn't sound like the good. They got the good life. This is the good life. That's what Jesus says. Verse 12. Rejoice and be glad actually means like rejoice and be glad to the point of leaping. When in America do people get so excited they rejoice and are so glad that they leap in America? In sports, just any old game? When do they leap? Maybe a touchdown? When you win the championship and you're in that stadium and the rest of you who couldn't afford a ticket, you know what I'm talking about, y'all have experienced this recently, you know you have, and you're there and some are in the stadium and some are watching it like, yeah, woo! That's what Jesus says we're supposed to do when we're persecuted. And we hear them like, like what? Like, wait, what, what? Why would anybody do that? Rejoice and be glad. For great is your reward in heaven. Now hang with me. We use words certain ways and Jesus uses words certain ways. I'm not here preaching against what I'm about to say because I'm guilty and we all do it. That pizza is awesome. That pizza is awesome. It's the best. It's the best. Oh, you're going there? It's, that's the best pizza. It's awesome. Is it really? Is it really? Oh, yeah. Everyone should gather around. This is awe-inspiring. What are we looking at? Well, this is dough, and it's got some sauce on it, and it's got some vegetables and cheese and meat, and it was put in that oven over there, and it came out. Let's just all gather around. This is awesome. And it tastes, it's the best. Is it the best? Is it the best? Oh, that's the best. Is it the best? Have you had all pizza in the world? Well, no, no. In your experience... It's the be- What I really mean is it's really good. Okay, now it's, it's really good. You like it. Okay, now we're good. There's the way we use words, and then there's the way Jesus uses words. Now listen, Jesus, when he says something, it matters. When he says something, he says it the best it can be said. When he says something, he says it with all knowledge. All knowledge of the past, all knowledge of the present, all knowledge of the future. And so what Jesus says, if you live such a life of righteousness that you end up persecuted... You should rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. When he says it's great, take it to the bank. It's great. I believe the apostles are remembering this on this day and like, we just got beat for the cause of Christ. Yeah, it hurts really bad. 
Cha-ching! We got great reward. Grace, if you listen to me, all Christians are going to go to heaven. All Christians will inherit and obtain heaven. But what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5 is the persecuted are going to have a greater reward. And right now, somebody in the building should be thinking, hey, whoa, 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 hang on. If that's true, then it would actually be an advantage to live in a context and have such a life of righteousness that it leads to persecution. Yep. There's some people around the world who are way ahead of us. They're in a context. But it might be coming here. And when it does, don't be downcast and sullen and bitter. Rejoice. I lied. I'm admitting it. I lied. I didn't do it on purpose. Would you follow me one last time to 1 Peter? Because I want you to see that 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. It's not on the screen. Beloved, verse 12. 1 Peter 4, 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Here the disciples went out rejoicing. Hey, beloved, this is Peter, whose words kind of kick-started this beating. Years later, he's writing, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. I'm the only one that's ever gone through. No, you're not. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Go back to verse 13. So don't think it's strange. I'm the only one. This is horrible. This has never happened to anybody else. God doesn't love me anymore. No, no, no. Hang on. Rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings. Verse 14. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. You know what I learned years ago? The word in so far, you know what it means? To the degree. What? Rejoice. To the degree, rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings. What's your point? Let me read my paragraph and I'm done. In so far in verse 13 literally means to the degree. Paul or Peter is implying that our blessing in verse 14 and thus our rejoicing should be proportionate to the degree we suffer for the name of Christ. So if God ever counts you worthy to suffer in greater ways for Christ's glory, then exalt more. Why? Because if your suffering is greater, that means your blessing is greater, and so your rejoicing should be greater. The worse the suffering, the greater you should rejoice because Jesus can't lie. He doesn't lie. So I believe on this day in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, the disciples are not just like, they didn't kill us. No, it's... Jesus is going to give us great reward. Can we have that last screen? I'm not going to teach it. We'll just put it up there. Because I'm done. See the last screen? Our sanctification is always God's purpose in allowing trials. What if God were to let something come into your life this week and it's going to hurt? 
I ask you this. If God would let something come in your life this week, and it would be very difficult, but if you knew that the end of that would make you closer to Him, would you welcome it? Did you catch it? Wait, what? It's going to hurt? It's going to be difficult? Yeah, but at the end of it, you're going to be closer to God because of it. Would you choose it? Like, wow, that's a difficult choice. That would be the wise choice. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Heads bowed, eyes closed. As we leave, can I challenge you with these last thoughts before prayer? Don't condemn other people just because so-and-so says they're not doing it the right way. There are things that we need to oppose and condemn and expose. There are things, but let's make sure we have Bible reasons. I want to impress upon you. Notice that God used one man, one man, to make a tremendous difference. Does God want to use you as one person to make a difference where you're at in your context? And then when difficulties and struggle, and especially persecution, comes to you. I don't have a friend group. They know I'm a Christian. I try to live for the Lord. And because of that, nobody has anything to do with me. Well, then you praise the Lord. Great is your reward in heaven. They talk about me. I lost my job because I'm a Christian. Praise the Lord for it. Great is your reward in heaven. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that you will cause us to be changed by it. Thank you for the example we have in the apostles. I pray, Lord, that we would be so loyal and dedicated that we would never allow hardship of being associated with you to cause us to be sullen and downcast or bitter. Never deterred. Lord, I pray that it would just redouble our efforts because we love you and you're worthy. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Have a great week.